If you've ever worshipped in a certain denomination, there comes a moment in that worship service when the priest comes in with something called a thurible, a device that's holding within it uh, burning incense. And the device is attached to a chain, a rather significant chain, so that the priest can swing the thurible, sometimes called a censer, and the priest will swing that device as he or she, in some instances, proceeds up the aisle. But you can really smell it as soon as the priest is in the back door. The distinctive aroma becomes present. It fills the room, and it really never leaves. It's a sign of never-ceasing prayer. In those sanctuaries, even during the week, if you step in and, and know what to smell for, you can still smell the incense, always present. Let my prayers rise before you as incense, sings the psalmist. Let my prayers rise before you as incense. Now you know, Mary and Martha, you've heard a story or two about those two sisters, and you heard a very prominent story from an earlier gospel uh, on a Sunday many, many weeks ago now. You remember the story. Martha is running around preparing uh, for the dinner, cleaning, washing dishes perhaps, all the things that you would do in those days to serve a meal. And Mary, her sister, is sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him, listening to him as he teaches, maybe listening with that word we just heard earlier, fervently. And Martha, as perhaps any one of us might do, becomes upset with her sister because she's not helping and she doesn't go to uh, Mary to complain, she goes to Jesus. Tell her to help me, she says to Jesus. And you remember what Jesus says to Martha upon that request. He gently scolds her. You are concerned with so many things, he says to Martha, when only one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen the better part. What is prayer if it's not sitting at Jesus' feet, listening for his word, his will, his, his way, looking for him, seeking to discern him? And when he reveals himself, that is always the better part, the better way. Well, John says that Jesus was attending yet another dinner party. Again, in the home now, says of Lazarus, that's Mary and Martha's brother. Martha had prepared the meal, we're told, playing the part still. And I imagine the room is filled with the smells of her labor, freshly baked bread, roasted lamb, 
the air is thick with celebration and we know why they are celebrating. Lazarus in this gospel has just been raised from the dead by Jesus in the previous chapter. The wine had to have been flowing, the smell of it sharp in the nostrils as the cup was lifted to their lips. All of them gathered to celebrate life. Life. Lazarus is there also, we're told, Martha's brother. John takes pains to remind us of what we just read in the previous chapter, that Lazarus had been raised from the dead by Jesus. That's the reason for the party, it seems. And so we join them at the dinner table, the bread and the meat and the wine, all of it filling the house with the scent of celebration, of joy, and Lazarus sitting right there in the middle of them, a sign in flesh and blood. I got invited many years ago now to something called a no-mo-chemo party. Any of you ever been to one of those? A no-mo-chemo party. It's a big throwdown that celebrates the end of chemotherapy treatments. And the pronouncement from the doctors usually that the guest of honor is now cancer-free and the hospital themselves will sometimes offer up this party, no more chemo party. I walked into this house and it was wall-to-wall joy. And I, here was this woman who had come so close to death and who had fought through the ravages of treatment and she was standing there smiling and welcoming the guests as they came in, laughing and sharing stories. When I said hello to her, she started to cry and she said, don't worry, these are tears of joy. It's so good to cry these kinds of tears and not the other. I said, I'm so happy for you. And she said, the thing I feel most is grateful. Just grateful to be here. And I made my way to the back of the house in the kitchen where there was slow roasted barbecue and a cake surrounded by balloons and white with red lettering, no chemo, it said. You know the feeling, right? You were lost and now you're found. You were dead and now you're alive. You were in the pit and someone pulled you out. You were wandering in darkness and the light came on. What do you do with such a moment? How do you respond? When grace shows up, how will you receive it? How will you live out of it? Here's the thing about this dinner party. Lazarus is there. He is alive. But one day he will not be. One day he will die. The fact of his sitting there breathing is not the most important detail in this story. It's not the thing that John points to. It's the one who raised him that John points to, who says, I am the resurrection and the life. That's the one who is the center of the story. 
If you are pronounced cancer-free, well, of course, this is an event which should be celebrated. But it's not the most important thing that was going on at that party. There's more going on for those with eyes to see, with eyes that have been enlightened by time in prayer at Jesus' feet, listening for his way. Martha is running here and there and serving the dinner, and Lazarus is at the table. John tells us about both of them right away. And then there's Mary, who's been sitting there quietly all along. And suddenly, the one who was barely mentioned takes center stage, bearing a pound of perfume, if you can imagine it, a pound of perfume worth a year's wages, we are told. And before anyone can react, Mary is pouring the perfume out onto Jesus' feet and letting her hair down and wiping his feet with her hair. And even if you couldn't see what was going on, believe you me, you could smell it. And John tells us so. The scent of the perfume filled the house where they were sitting. Filled the house. Only a chapter before, this house was filled with the stench of death and mourning. Now a fragrant smell and grateful love have overcome these other scents. And this act has the effect of overpowering all the other smells in the room. The smell of death is gone. The smell of the meal is gone. The chattering of the guests grows quiet. All eyes are now fixed on Mary as she anoints. It's a moment, a real moment, not unlike lots of other moments in John's Gospel, a moment of decision. And Judas makes his decision. He scolds Mary and by extension Jesus for this prodigal act, this wasteful act as he sees it. He cites concern for the poor, but Jesus is having none of it. He, he knows where he is headed. The cross is waiting for him right outside the doors of this dinner party. Mary and Mary alone has recognized the moment. Mary and Mary alone knows what time it is. Her prayer at Jesus' feet has prepared her for this very moment. And Jesus says it, she anoints him for burial. She purchased this perfume, Jesus says, to anoint his body for burial. That's the reason she purchased it. She didn't have it hidden away for a special occasion. She went out, most likely not too long after Lazarus emerged from the tomb, and she spent a year's worth of wages to buy this pound of perfume that was used specifically to anoint dead bodies. And she poured it out publicly on Jesus. She uses her own hair to wipe it in 
to his feet. Extravagant, intimate. She's offering her worship. She's offering her life in response to the grace at whose feet she kneels. That woman who was pronounced cancer-free had her cancer return. But in the period between the no more chemo party and the recurrence of the cancer, she had started attending Sunday school. She went on a couple of mission trips. She reconnected and reconciled with a family member she had not spoken to in 20 years. And she could be found Sunday after Sunday in the same pew, at the feet of Christ, as it were, singing the hymns, praying the prayers, giving thanks. Those cancer-free years were filled with the scent of her offering. So when it came time for her to die, as it will for all of us, she was able to die as one who had truly lived the abundant life that Jesus offers, which is both a gift to us and our task. Mary's generosity is revealed in prayer. Her time being attentive to Jesus' will and way had prepared her heart to offer this most amazing of gifts at just the right time. And we too, on this day, are invited to take our place in the presence of Christ in prayer that we might also discern the time in which we live and the call of God upon us to offer ourselves as a fragrant offering. Here we are with the news continuing to be horrendous of the war being fought in Ukraine. Here we are emerging from a worldwide pandemic that still is taking the lives of 700 or more of our fellow citizens every day. Here we are, having existed as a church now for over 211 years in Franklin and Williamson County. And we are turning together, all of us together, with generations before us cheering us on, with generations not yet born, anticipating what we will do. What time is it for us? What is God's will and way for us today? Only prayer will reveal it. But always, always the times in Christ are cross-shaped. That's what Mary knows as she pours out this perfume to anoint his body for burial. And that's what we know as well. That's why that sign is on all of these windows and behind you as you leave, before you as you worship. Cross-shaped. And so we gather at this table in the shadow of the cross. The bread and the wine have been lovingly prepared. 
I invite you to consider as you take communion this morning to allow the scent of it, the taste of it, to linger for you. In this bread and wine is a great gift, the presence and nourishment of Christ himself. In this bread and wine is a great calling to follow Christ to all the places in the world where he is at work and to pour out our offering, our very selves. May our prayers rise as incense and may the scent of that offering fill this house and your house and this broken and beloved world with love. Amen.